How does she know which are her yaks? Her name is Tinley. She's 19 years old, and she's the shepherd of the family that we're staying with. What you're hearing is uh, the shepherd calling the yaks off the hills, and she's using a slingshot to shoot rocks to them and get them to come down off the hills. We're at 11,000 foot elevation. The air is very thin and clear, and crystal blue sky, late afternoon. Snow on the top of the hills, very cold. I'm here with Septrim. He's my guide and my translator, and we're actually staying with his family, who are nomads, and we're here with them at their winter camp. It's more like um, get up in the early in the morning. First, like take out uh, the yak dunks, and then afterwards milk the yak. And then after milk the yak, they will um, let the yaks go, and then collect the rest of the dunks, and then work on it. And afterwards, they come back to have a like a, a tea. And then after the tea, they will uh, like uh, they be working on the laundries, clean houses, and those things that you have to repeat and repeat ever, like uh, all the time. After that, it's a meal. And then after you get the meal, and then you take care of the yak, the yaks again. But before I got here, I flew into Beijing. From Beijing, I flew to Jekundo, which is the capital of this region, the Kham region of Tibet. And from Jekundo, we got in a car, we headed up a road and across a pass. This pass is a very slow pass, and then you don't really have a chance to go very fast and then fell off edge or anything like that. Uh-huh. With a very heavy like snow in the winter, or sometimes we miss the road, because you kind of have to guess where the road is. And uh, if you miss it, you drive into this, and you just like leave the car there, okay. or find people to pull it out. See a whole convoy of trucks ahead of us. Yeah. Okay, shall we let them go first, and then? Oh, see the chains that we have. Okay. I don't really often use this. We're here at 15,000 foot elevation. The air is very thin and cold, and it's snowing hard. It's snowing so hard. We know there are mountains all around us, but you can't really see them. You can barely make out the outlines through the snow. 
Or do all of these mountains have names? Uh, not all of them, but the ones who is uh, special. Like uh, people come to pray for the mountain. You can see the prayer flags. Every year they come and then worship to the mountains. We also ask the free pass through the, these like uh, territories without any trouble. Yeah, and then it's like also the herd of this area land is like protected by him. Even the hunters do not hunt the animals who comes and holy mountain. And the family, common families, does not take down the trees or pick up flowers around the holy mountain too. This is all protected by the spirit. Seeing this mountain and hearing him say this, I'm beginning to understand that the whole religion is based on what their lives are made of. These mountains, this earth, those yaks, these trees. But it's very strange when sometimes like Chinese come in, they just do whatever, everything that we totally not dare to. Because like for, for Tibetans, we believe it. And in fact, really act in the way. Because like, uh, for example, somebody did something bad to the spirit, they'll get punished having diseases or like uh, some problem will appear on their family. Mm -hmm. But then it never really happened to the Chinese, none of these things. And so then do people start to just not believe? I think that it actually does affect with their faith because it's a really take a lot of effort to protect these mountains. But then, then they start like abandoning the belief and then doing whatever the Chinese do. And the treating the holy mountain the way the Chinese treat it includes building the road we're driving on right now. Bought a lot of convenience though. Uh -huh. Like for us today, we're driving much faster. We've gotten to winter camp, and it's actually a village of houses that are all interconnected with these old stone walls mortared with mud. One house, one wall leaning on the next. You can't really even tell where one house ends and the next one begins. So now the Chinese have built all the nomads new houses. The deal was they were supposed to tear down the old ones. But now at Sebtrim's cousin's house, there's still an old house, but the new one's built in front, so they have two houses. For the most part, the family lives in the new Chinese house. Building these new houses is, seems to me to be part of the whole push that China's making to modernize the nomads, you know, get them in real Chinese houses get their kids in school, get them working jobs, get them to stop herding yaks, make them more Chinese. Walking into this new house, the first room you come into is a catch-all. It's the kitchen where all the cooking's being done. It's the living room where everybody gathers. And it's the bedroom for most of the kids. It's an extended family of 12 people who live here, six of whom are kids under the age of 10. 
Tenley the shepherd, who we heard. She's the older cousin to this group of kids. A little over five feet tall. She's got that beautiful, broad face. She's just come in from being outside, and her cheeks are bright red and chapped from the wind. She is wearing the traditional Tibetan jacket, which now is made out of black cotton with white fleece inside. She has a hat on and a scarf on and a mask over her face. That keeps her warm when she's out in the wind with the yaks. It's really nice being in this kitchen, but now it's time for Tenley to go back out and tend to the yaks do the second milking of the day. This late in the year, the sun doesn't stay down in the valley very long. It's mostly behind the hills. People talk about how how the Inuits have, or the Eskimos, have so many different words for snow. Well, it's the same idea. The Tibetans have so many different names for all the different kinds of yaks. So from age-wise, be, yara, he, tru. These are the four different years of the of the baby yak. So when they get turned on the age of four, then it will be like a mature yak. Not only that, but there are two names for the mature males, there's one for the mature females, and then there's one name for the yaks that get offered by each of the families to the monastery. Okay, so there's eight different names for yaks. (laughs) She knows each of these yaks like I know my own kids. Her constant awareness, her constant work is the key to this family and their whole livelihood. She's probably the person that the family relies on the most to continue their nomadic way of life. Of course, it's a very hard work. But then when you like, turn into the how you would like to please the family, help them, and then you willing to take all the like, response and then do all, all these things. So now it's getting colder. The sun is now completely down behind the hills. And the snow on the mountaintops, you can see the sunset going down someplace very far away from this cold valley. Septim and I are heading back to the warmth of the kitchen. But Tinley, she still has half the herd to milk. So we come in from the cold and walking into the kitchen, it's so warm from the fire and the yakdong stove. And the whole family is here. The mother and the grandmother are cooking dinner on the stove. The kids are kind of running around and they're watching TV. They're watching a Chinese soap opera on a DVD. The kids are told to practice their letters loudly and assertively. It's the way you do things around here, it seems. You make your statement. Be sure of yourself. These kids are not exactly timid. 
the Kham people, the people from this region of Tibet, are traditionally renowned as warriors. That's what they're known as amongst the Tibetans and among the Chinese. They're not allowed to even carry weapons anymore. But other than that, as far as I can tell, not much has changed. That's still their identity to the core. This is Lodru. He's the man of the family. This is Septrum's cousin. He's in his early 30s. He's wearing a bright orange down jacket and jeans and a cowboy hat. He's got a broad, tan face and a big black mustache and his baby sitting on his lap. He's telling me about the business of yak herding. He's just explaining as being a nomad. It's it's something that uh, it don't really like uh, generate a lot of like capitals for the family, but then it's a it's a really n- nice way of living. Like you don't really hunger for food, you don't feel cold from like lack of clothings. It's not really easy life, but it's a sustainable life. It's unlike a business. Uh, through a business that you can totally lose everything. But uh, yak, it's like, um, even you get it, it's no disaster. Out of 100 yak, 50 dies, or even 90 dies. You still would have some left. With this little left that uh, you got, you can always start from that. Right now, he's sending all the kids to the school, um, like uh, by hoping that they can learn some knowledge in the school. So he was expecting that uh, some kids will um, be able to live on their knowledge. And the ones who does not have such ability will come back home uh, so they can become like uh, nomads again. Maybe living here on the Tibetan plateau, the largest plateau in the world, gives you this kind of bird's eye view. If you have yaks, that's good, because you can always rely on them. If you don't have yaks, well, hopefully you have a really good alternate plan. But even so, even with all of that perspective, we can all still see that there are real forces and real people pressing down on him and his family. He doesn't really know for sure that he'll always be there for his kids. He makes that very clear to me. This is how it's going. I mean, it's like a, the situation. I mean, all these like big things, they just like the way it's going, they just goes with the flow. If he's gone, if he's passed away, like they will be still be able to live. Under Lodru's down jacket, he's stripped down to his undershirt. But over that, he's wearing this beautifully carved silver box that's tied on each end with a woven strap and slung diagonally over his shoulder and under his arm. This box, it's a gift from the lamas. And then it contains all the prayer that they have uh, prayed. And then also like contains many different like holy things. 
part of their clothes, the lama's clothes, and then also like uh, part of their, when great lamas pass away, they have also their like remaining bodies, and so this like uh, precious things, uh, like uh, holy things, was contained in this box to protect him from when he was traveling from the evil spirits. Time for the kids to go back to school, so we're driving them. All right, you're in front, and then... All right, everybody in rock and roll. So it's six in the morning. We're out on the hill across the river where the yaks are. Everything's covered with frost, glittering, following the mom while she collects the dung for the burrow. So she just does the one barrel full of dung in the uh, Right now, but then she'll milk the yak first because the rest of the yak is not for milk. So later they will, she'll work on the dung for these yaks. Got it. Taking care of the yaks is an endless, relentless task. And not everyone wants to do it anymore. Not everyone wants to keep being a nomad. Things are changing. Later that same afternoon, when I was out with a shepherd, I noticed out on the hills, after all the yaks had been gathered by everyone in the village, there was still a few yaks out there dotting the hillside. I mean, how does that happen, that yaks end up with no owner? That there are some just wild, random yaks wandering around? The original family has moved to Jegu or other places. So what happens to the herd? They will sell the ones who owned by them. But the ones who they freed, they do not uh, supposed to sell them. So they will ask the families locally to help them to take care of them. So people are leaving, and they're leaving their yaks behind. I picked up this recording of nuns chanting in a monastery from a CD that the family had sitting on the mantel in the kitchen. 
It's pretty common for nomadic families to have at least one family member that's a nun or a monk, and this family has one of each. This nun is Lodru's sister. The young father, Lodru, is preparing for the possibility of his own death and for the death of the nomadic way of life. But the nun tells me that for Tibetans, death isn't the end of anything. But uh, for the ones who practice Dharma, it's just like a, it's just a, mm, kind of like a s- simple stop. For like while you're walking, you will stop, look at the side or look back, that sort of thing. And then you will continue your journey. So the stop doesn't really, you don't afraid of stop while you're walking. Same thing like uh, death, like uh, when they look at that, it, they just see as a simple stop, no longer as the end of the story. As I'm talking with her, the kids come charging into the room, demanding all her attention. And she gives it to them. See, like, if uh, you don't take care, all these, uh, like, uh, little guys go wild. (laughs) So that's the way that devout Tibetans are walking towards death. But there's also certain qualities that they work to embody. Be a warrior, but do that in order to carry out justice. Manage yourself and the forces working against you with an equal measure of justice and peacefulness. I'm thinking I want the changes to stop. I want the nomads to keep herding their yaks. I want them to keep believing in the holy mountain. But maybe the nomads are wiser than I am. They adapt. They take advantage of a new situation. They move with the seasons. And maybe that's the psychological advantage that nomads have anyway. They never have the chance to adopt the illusion that things stay the same. King Gesar is the mythical king hero that all Tibetan kids have heard about. He comes down to earth when things are in disarray to help bring the earth back to balance, bring the teachings of Buddhism back to the people who've begun to forget them. There are hundreds of traditional stories of Gesar. I meet a Gesar archivist and ask her what the meaning of the stories are for the Tibetan kids today. The characteristics is qualities of like a King Kishar. It's actually this teach not just Tibetans, young people. Yeah, teach can the people. Also benefiting all the like entire beings, human beings from different corners of this world, uh, like uh, righteousness, kindness. And then justice, justice, peaceful. All these qualities, which is very necessary, it's um, like something that you can can apply on any culture, any 
time, any situation. King Gesar comes down to earth, to human society, to try to conquer, one by one, conquer all the demons, which are just manifestations of evil. It's not because he likes to do it, or it's not because that uh, he <coughs> wants to do it. It's all fall under one eternal goal that should bring the peace to this land. After all, he is a messenger of a peace. These guys are way beyond where I was going with all of this. I had thought King Gesar was a kind of superhero to the Tibetans, and he was somebody who could actually come down and rescue them. But that's not it at all. There is no rescue. It's up to each individual to assume these qualities, to assume this perfect balance of peacefulness and the pursuit of justice. The story isn't perfect, and it's never finished. <laughs> 